Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There is no speculation that definitive on our world order is Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. We enjoy so much our beginning of the year analysis with his Eurasia Group, and we're thrilled Dr. Bremmer could join us this morning. Ian, I'm going to start with Lebanon. I know there are many other themes to touch here as well. I want to go to Henry Kissinger's World Order, that wonderful book of a few years ago where Dr. Kissinger uh, speaks about the decline of the state. Lebanon is a card-carrying decline of the state right now. How do they right the ship of what was once the jewel of the Levant? And my, my God, Tom, I mean, any of us that have been to Beirut know it's our favorite city in the Middle East. It's so cosmopolitan. It's so lively. It brings together so many different civilizations and cultures. But the government is a disaster. And I mean, frankly, you know, coronavirus doesn't even hit their top three right now, right? It's a massive financial crisis, it's incredible economic contraction, it's social dissent across the country, um, big corruption, and now uh, likely through mismanagement. I mean, if you see what they've done with their banking system, if you've seen what they've done with their sanitation system, it shouldn't surprise anyone that they have no capacity uh, to deal with hazardous materials. Um, and, and you see uh, the, the, the untold deaths, uh, the destruction of uh, a good swath of, of the jewel of the country and of the region just leveled uh, yesterday. And it's, it's horrifying to see. Right. And what, what they can do, I mean, they're not going to have it's hard for them. If Hezbollah is in the government, the IMF has a hard time working with them. And the Gulf states are, are certainly not going to provide the kind of support that they've been able to historically. How are they going to rebuild in that environment? Well, to go back, Ian, to your book of 2015, Superpower, we need to make a choice of how we project from Istanbul down to those Gulf states. How do we project? What is a choice that a second-term Trump or a first-term Biden will have to make? Feels like less involvement in the Middle East. I mean, Biden had a very, you know, solid, uh, non-controversial tweet yesterday saying his heart goes out to these people. The United States needs to provide humanitarian aid. Absolutely. But I mean, compared to when my book came out, the United States is now the world's largest energy producer. Um, we're much less interested in what's going on in the Middle East than we used to. We're much more concerned about China, much more yeah. oriented on the Pacific. So I just, whether it's okay. or Trump, I think it's hard to imagine the U.S. is going to be increasing its footprint anytime soon in this region. Ian, let's move to China then. And of course, the provocative act of a member of the cabinet of the Trump administration will attend Taipei, maybe the first major visit of a U.S. representative in 40 years. How will that be taken by Beijing? Well, less badly than if it was, say, Secretary of State Pompeo or uh, Secretary of Defense Esper. I mean, you know, you're not, you're not talking about someone who is particularly controversial in his mandate, going to go over talking about coronavirus and the great response that Taiwan indeed was behind. But what we should recognize is this is, of all of the escalations out there, this is completely gratuitous. This is completely unnecessary. It's not like the response on TikTok 
which has a real national security concern, Huawei, where the Americans are behind in 5G. We need to do something. I mean, those you understand why the Americans are doing that, why they're doing it now. Where in the case of Taiwan, it's purely rally around the flag, drive a spike into China's core interests right before American elections. And it makes the next couple of months very dangerous. The Chinese will certainly respond. They might respond by hitting some American companies doing business in Taiwan. They might respond um, with a show of military force uh, in the region. And let's keep in mind that anti-Chinese sentiment, anti-mainland Chinese sentiment in Taiwan, especially on the back of the new national security law imposed in Hong Kong, is incredibly high right now. So you really didn't need these tensions. I, I tweeted last night, let's not start a war Let's not get into a war over yeah. Taiwan. We have enough problems with China right now that we didn't need to take this step. But Ian, you understand better than most people that come on this program. The People's Republic of China has frozen Taiwan out of multilateral organizations. And for most people in the medical industry, here's a place that seems to have handled this pandemic fantastically. They have reported just seven deaths for a population of 24 million. And because China insists that they have no part in multilateral organizations, there has been very little done to find out why Taiwan has been successful. Isn't it a good thing that Secretary Azar is actually going there to find out? Um, I, I think you could do that much more effectively by having a lot of engagement at the less than secretary level. You don't need the symbolism of a cabinet secretary to do exactly what you just suggested. Also, let's keep in mind that uh, yes, Taiwan is not allowed to join the World Health Organization, though they can exchange some information uh, because uh, China keeps them out. And I, I think that's an appalling reality. Having said that, uh, President Trump has uh, said he's withdrawing uh, from the World Health Organization uh, because they're in China's pocket. And uh, the idea that the United States president would leave the WHO in the middle of a pandemic shows that the argument that you're making is probably not at the top of President Trump's agenda right now. Ian, there is a strange double standard here, though, that I know resonates with you. When we talk about things like TikTok, the Chinese talk about theft, and people everywhere else outside of China are basically laughing, saying, you want to talk about the theft of technology? You want to talk about these kind of things? Talk about irony. And Ian, I think it's a delicate moment whereby if you have business in China, you can no longer talk about what is happening in China. And I'm sure this is something that resonates with you directly, because as far as I understand, Ian, you have no business in China and you're able to speak openly about China. And you know that if you had business there, you wouldn't be, would you? That's right. It'd be much more difficult. And I, I think it's a real problem. I mean, for the banks, for the consulting firms, for all the people that ostensibly do independent research, but what can they say about China? Because it's going to undermine their business. I mean, you saw LeBron James, huge advocate for Black Lives Matter, but on Hong Kong, he's towing the PRC line. Not that he knows anything about it, but the point is everyone that does business in China understands it's a big market and the rules change. They determine what the rules will be. On TikTok specifically, you know, we need to understand that it's not just about China's national security uh, issues and their control of data, um, which, you know, you have to prove, do we have evidence is an open question, but it's also reciprocity. The Chinese government does not allow key American tech firms to do business as usual in the world's largest data market, whether you're talking about Facebook whether you're talking about Google, whether you're talking about Wikipedia or Reddit, 
none of them are allowed um, inside mainland China with, you know, a billion, 1.4 billion people uh, and a majority of them online. So, I mean, what, why would you allow Chinese tech firms to have openness with the United States in that environment? You asked me about my book, Superpower. But, you know, the book that I think is more relevant for this is one I wrote about 10 years ago called The End of the Free Market. And if you're in a world where the soon-to-be largest economy is authoritarian and state capitalist, you don't have a global free market anymore. And the idea that the United States is going to pretend that we do and we're going to give the Chinese complete access to the American uh, consumer base and database yeah. is ludicrous on its face. Ian, there's a question about how markets price these rising U.S.-China tensions. They've been more general in nature when you talk about 5G or tech predominance. It's, it's hard to price that in. It's easier to price in a trade deal or a trade deal that's falling apart, and senior U.S. and Chinese officials are getting together to discuss the progress of the phase one trade deal. Do you expect it to be thrown out? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that the phase one trade deal is increasingly marginal to the U.S.-China relationship. And I'm glad you framed the question and the interview you've done with me that way, because most of the times you're talking to you guys, um, you know, it, it's in the last few months, it's all been about what about the phase one trade deal? And I understand that if we get rid of it, the tariffs are going up and that's going to affect American voters, American consumers. But, but the reality is that the more and, and no, I, it may well get thrown out in the next uh, three months, especially if Trump feels like he's losing as we get closer to the election. But uh, much more concerning is the potential that we really come to blows with the Chinese, that mistakes lead to escalation. And then you're not talking about the phase one deal. You're talking about. Uh, you know, can large swaths of Americans travel to China still? Will we have to pull our expats out? Will it be a dangerous environment for them? Um, you know, will will baseline trade between our two countries be disrupted? Will companies have non-tariff uh, moves against them that make it impossible for large U.S. companies to still do business in China? What's the future of Apple, you know, for example? Companies yeah. like that. Th th those things are so much broader and deeper than the continued existence of, a, of an important but, a, a, you know, still modest and incremental phase one trade deal. What we do know is that there ain't no phase two trade deal. That, that's pretty clear. I think we can all agree on that. Ian, great to catch up with you, sir, as always. Ian all Bremer right. there of the Eurasia Group. If you're taking notes at home, all these back and forth between Lisa, John and me, what that talks about is correlations. And there's no one better to speak to than Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley, not so much on bonds. Not so much on equities, but the linkages of equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. Mr. Sheets joins us uh, this morning. Andrew Sheets, what correlations do you see in the market that give you some form of signposts to the end of the year? Yeah, so I, I think what's actually really fascinating is that, you know, so much of the market, as you just alluded to, is, is driving off of the same trade, is driving off of a long-duration trade. And, and I think that's wrapped up everything from uh, from the NASDAQ uh, to gold, to even things like emerging markets, right, which I think were historically associated as, you know, these kind of deep cyclical, uh, a deep cyclical asset class. But if you look at what's driving EM, uh, it's, it's a very narrow rally driven by very large technology names, uh, in some ways kind of similar to, the, to what's happening in the U.S. So I, I think there remains uh, a, a dominant theme that investors are, are very confident in, in the yield outlook. 
are are still very concerned about growth, but are are optimistic around right. the idea <clears throat> that real yields will remain low for a long period of time. Well said. In the EM space, Turkish lira just moments ago weakens out to a 703 for the pros. That's a big deal. Andrew Sheets, that's all great, but the juxtaposition here is Apple and Amazon to the moon versus gold to the moon. How are safe havens playing right now? Well, I, I think what's actually very kind of fascinating uh, is is the way that those real yields are falling, right? Because the the, the nominal yield is, is more or less stable, or, or just can't fall very much, and so the, the 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 driver of those lower real interest rates has actually been inflation expectations going up, and and I, I would consider those higher inflation expectations actually consistent with kind of a better economy, with a more normal recovery uh, than, than the opposite. And, and where I think that's important is if I think you take an asset like gold, I think a lot of people view it as, as a hedge. I'm, I'm buying this because I'm worried about the state of the economy. I'm worried about the state of the world. It's going to protect my portfolio if things do worse. But actually, I think the way that gold is performing is perf- performing much more like a cyclical asset. It's, it's benefiting from higher inflation expectations. It's going up when the market's going up, like, like is happening today. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind with some of these assets, that, that they, are, they might be less diversifying to each other than expected because of how they're, they're performing relative to some of these factors. Andrew, are you looking to reduce risk exposure at the moment? We are, yes. I, I think that we still remain quite comfortable with the, the overall economic recovery, and, and we at Morgan Stanley have been and, and remain in, I think, kind of an out-of-consensus V-shaped recovery camp. But, you know, we, we're coming off of a very strong uh, performance, uh, certainly up through July, and, and you know, we've, we've voiced concern that August and September look like a more difficult environment, that I think we're, we're losing some of the positive catalysts we had last month. We're obviously higher in prices, leaving less upside to our, our price targets. And even though I, I think overall the economic momentum is still sustainable, I'm, I'm probably most worried that we see some pausing of that economic momentum over the, last, over the next uh, two months, especially in the U.S., where you have seen a, a worse COVID dynamic than our initial forecast expected. So, Andrew, what I find interesting about the thinking over at Morgan Stanley at the moment is that even if the recovery slows, so long as the momentum is positive and things go in the right direction, you think that's sufficient for risk. Andrew, why? Well, I, I do think, you know, I think a couple of factors are going on. I, I, I think first is that I think we kind of step back and, and especially kind of step back from, from the next you know month or so. I think I think big picture, I think we're still seeing a lot of relatively encouraging early cycle dynamics in a market. You have very easy policy. You have weak but improving data. You have relatively light investor positioning. You know, I think a reasonable amount of investor caution. These, these are all, I think, characteristics that are very common um, you know, during or, or right after recessions. And I think that they ultimately mean that I think the recovery that we're seeing is, is going to be sustainable, that, um, that this is not you know, just a, a flash in the pan. Um, and so, yes, I, I think the market, I, I would expect to have a, a more challenging environment over the next couple of months. But I, I think stepping back from that, a sustainable recovery, a very supportive policy response, I think relatively kind of balanced investor positioning, all, I think, argue that this will be ultimately be a sustainable recovery if we look at over the next six to 12 months. Six to 12 months is the long term. In the short term, we face a lot of volatility. Uh, President Trump is saying on Fox and Friends this morning that a big job number is coming on Friday. Friday, putting aside this sort of breaking with former protocol of presidents and people in administration not talking about jobs data before it comes out. 
I'm curious about the trading activity. You're seeing yields on 30-year treasuries breaking out to the upside. Not much action in stock futures. How do you trade an upside surprise in labor data at this point? Does it just mean higher inflation and already baked into equities? Yeah, so I, I actually think, you know, the, the price action that we're seeing this morning, the price action that we saw um, on, on Monday where you saw yields higher, yield curves steeper, and and market and equity markets higher. I think that's actually the much healthier dynamic. I, I think that's the much more normal dynamic. And and I think you know we've done a lot of analysis that's all very consistent with the idea that markets are completely fine with yields being higher. Uh, you, many times bec- because those yields are rising in response to better economic optimism, and that better economic optimism can can easily offset challenges that might come from that slightly higher discount rate. So I, I actually don't see any um, uh, uh, inconsistency there. And, and I think actually the the more abnormal environment is where we've been, where you've seen rising markets and, and really declining yields. I think that's much more unusual than the market often gives credit for. And the dynamic that we're seeing either this morning or, or on Monday is a more more normal, I think, sustainable, robust dynamic for the market. And Andrew, this is one of the key narratives of the market right now, that equities are pricing in optimism, that bond markets are simply ignoring and that yields are going to rise, particularly on the longer end. But at what point does the rise in longer end yields lead to a sell-off in equities based on the relative value argument that people say, where you just, there is no alternative mm-hmm. and you got to go into risk assets? Well, I, I still think, uh, I think big picture, I think we're actually still some ways away from that. You know, I, I think given where we are in the U.S., you know, 10-year at, at around 50 basis points, it's certainly real yields, as, as you mentioned earlier, at minus 100 basis points. I think, you know, I, I think you actually have, you know, uh, 50, you know, 50 basis points plus, I think, where those yields can go before you're, uh, I think, generating, you know, any sort of real valuation pressure. And, and again, that there's just an enormous amount of market history that if yields are rising because of higher economic uh, enthusiasm, then then you know equity markets, credit markets can be completely fine with that. Now, I do think the dynamic you 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 mentioned though could involve a major shift in leadership, right? Because the, the types of stocks that people are buying because they think yields will remain low for a very long period of time, I think, are very different stocks than they would buy if they thought actually the recovery was sustainable. Things are getting maybe it might get back to, to normal next year, and I think that would be the big story that you've seen. You know, within the market this year, a huge divergence, a very kind of narrow market that I think a more sustainable, the more sustainable the recovery, the broader that should be. And I think it would drive potentially major leadership shifts, both in the U.S. and, and globally. Hey, Andrew, great to catch you up, sir. Andrew Sheets over at Morgan Stanley on the view there to reduce risk in the near term. Right now, a really, really important conversation If you're worried about the stresses of this pandemic, Louisiana has been incredibly hit with a legitimate second spike in cases and deaths as well. They have the correct senator to monitor his Louisiana, and that is William Cassidy. Bill Cassidy, the Republican from Louisiana, who long ago and far away studied medicine and long ago far away uh, supported Mike Dukakis and Paul Sagas. Dr. Cassidy, we are thrilled to have you with us today. And I want to speak about your Louisiana State University. They want to get their football season started. They want to open their college. And yet you have a pandemic. You're the expert on this in Congress. Should LSU have a football season? They're delaying the season up until September. Obviously, they're taking it as it should. But keep in mind, this pandemic may stay with us for another year or a year and a half. We're hoping vaccines become available 
We don't know that. We're really asking ourselves, are we going to put everything on hold for a year and a half, or are we going to figure out how to safely live with this and conduct our lives? I think we need to figure out how to safely live with it. It's going to take a lot of adjustment, but we have to figure out how to safely live with it. Dr. Cassidy, our David Weston will be speaking with Dr. Fauci here uh, in a bit. Do you support Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx's efforts on the pandemic? Yes. On the other hand, you can see that they have learned as they have gone along. I once asked Dr. Fauci, do we really expect five- and six-year-olds not to go to school for another year? And within three weeks after considering, he goes, no, they must go back to school. That is a wise decision. So we see the two of them evolving as we understand the scope of the epidemic. Senator, right now in Washington, D.C., everyone is focused on the idea of a second round of stimulus, a fiscal bailout for the states and local governments as the Democrats want. I'm wondering, from the Republican standpoint, has the view shifted on the $600 enhanced unemployment benefit, uh, extra benefit that people are getting, based on the fact that President Trump has come out seemingly in support of that? So um, Republicans in the Senate understand, one, you have to support families through this rough patch. But if you pay people a lot more not to work than to work, that's a disincentive to work, and that's negative for the person, negative for their future employment possibilities, et cetera. Keep in mind, some people, depending on your state, were making 230% or more relative to what they would have earned working. Now, that's not good for them if you you say that, oh, wait, I'm not going to work. Short-term decision, that's wise. Long-term, you lose seniority, you lose your job skills. Statistically, the longer you're unemployed, the harder it is to reenter the workforce, the worse your life becomes. Senator, so hold on one second. Hold on one second there, because Dallas Fed President uh, Robert Kaplan came on and said that he has heard from certain business officials that this is a concern, that people aren't coming back to the workforce because of how much they're getting paid on unemployment. However, there is no data to support that. And he said in the long run, the increase in income would offset the detraction uh, that could be felt in the short run. Is there any evidence that you've seen that points to people not entering the workforce, that businesses are unduly hampered with rehiring people due to the size of the enhanced unemployment benefit? You know, sometimes things are so self-evident that you shouldn't have to prove it. If you're paying somebody 230% more than they would working to not work, they're not going to work. By the way, that has been previously written about by Larry Summers and Paul Krugman, two left-of-center economists. And in my hometown, in my home state, you will see signs, we are hiring. Uh, And if you talk to employers... They will talk about job applicants that are um, just refusing to be interviewed. Now, at some point, common sense has to reign. 230% times more than you would make working to not work. People are going to make a rational short-term decision. Why can't we compromise? I mean, you're sitting in a hospital, Dr. Cassidy, and you've got to compromise every day with a grievously ill patient. Where is the art of compromise? Where, where, Where did it go? You know, right now, Pelosi has said that she wants her HEROES Act, period. And she's a lot, and, and so when, when Republicans, when the White House says we will allow a $600 a week continuing for a week while we negotiate, she says no. When Republicans say, wait a second, we will allow a $400 for, several, for two months uh, so while we negotiate, she says no. She wants her entire package. A package, by the way, that mentions marijuana more than it mentions jobs. So there's a lot of policy in there unrelated to COVID, 
that Republicans are looking at saying, wait, we're going to do long-term policy on a short-term issue? No, that okay, doesn't make sense. But, Senator Cassidy, you've taken a real middle ground over, even though Louisiana is now dominantly Republican, you've got an interesting cross-party heritage. Does President Trump and, frankly, the leader, Leader McConnell, do they risk giving up the Senate to the Democrats? Well, of course we're in a tough year, and it's going to be tough on incumbents. People expect more. And I think that's what Pelosi's banking on. Again, she would rather the pain be on the unemployed so she gets her bigger package. At some point, I just remember my doctor roots. We take care of the patient. Right now, the patient is the person who doesn't have a job and needs help. And so how do we best help them? And we can argue about marijuana at a later point. That's my perspective. Senator, thank you so much. Senator Cassidy there with an update on LSU football and uh, a few other matters as well. The gentleman from Louisiana. Right now, we're going to do what we haven't done today. We've looked at the stimulus. We've looked at all the different news, a horrific tragedy in Beirut. And there is this idea, I made a joke about it earlier, of TikTok and Microsoft. To get a broader view, uh, Sarah Hindley joins us with Macquarie Group on software, but a broader view, not so much buy, hold, sell here, but sort of on where the industry is going. Sarah, let me start with a million-dollar question. There's a lot of angst about China, Huawei. TikTok, and many more. Is it justified? Do we have evidence that they're playing with our software? That's a very fair question. And yes, we actually have seen um, history in the past of uh, Chinese corruption, of supply chain um, issues. And we've a longstanding had an issue with, pi- with piracy over in China as well. But I think what you're seeing here in this particular situation where we're talking about TikTok is the government's perspective is that because TikTok is built using a series of algorithms that leverages the data that users are uploading into the system around their short videos, that they can apply that AI to that data for potentially nefarious purposes facial recognition, you're giving them access to your camera, you're giving them access to your microphone, location tracking, and search history tracking. So we do indeed have a history of concerns with uh, data privacy, software usage, software piracy with the Chinese government. And I think there are some legitimate reasons uh, for the U.S. government to Uh, Be concerned about U.S. consumer data usage, especially given the escalating tensions with China occurring right now. Sarah, certainly there's there's a geopolitical issue, and this is something that President Trump has talked about, and there will be discussions ongoing. But then there's a business element, Microsoft coming in and saying that it is uh, interested in purchasing the U.S. arm of TikTok. Yesterday, Axios reporting that Apple was getting in on it and had expressed interest. Apple rebutted that and said that that was not the case. Sarah... Do you buy that Apple would get involved or perhaps should get involved based on their efforts to get into content? I do think that every single major technology player at this point in time, when there's a forced sale of an asset that's scaling to what they're reporting to be roughly a billion dollars in revenues, with 50% of U.S. teenagers on the application, should call their bankers and should ask to be either engaged in a conversation or at least understand what the dynamics of the deal flow are in regards to the forced sale of TikTok. 
So certainly I do believe that most tech companies will, should, or can take a look at this asset. But it is my opinion that Microsoft would be the most viable buyer, given its history of extraordinary performance with its recent acquisitions under Satya Nadella, including LinkedIn and GitHub. What's the price that you think would be uh, adequate for TikTok, or the U.S. operations, I should say? I think it'll be something north of $25 billion. I mean, it is a distressed force sale. 25 times sales is a, is a pretty large multiple, but it's not out of the ballpark of where Microsoft has paid in the past, especially if you look at GitHub. And by the way, it harkens back <clears throat> to what Facebook did in 2014 with WhatsApp, throwing down $18 billion on a company pre-monetization. Uh, Sarah, one final question. By old cell, what's your favorite uh, effort right now with the moonshot we've seen in technology? Can you, be, can you still be enthusiastic about one security? Absolutely. I think that there is a reason to look at the software sector and say, listen, this is the sector that's enabling work from home. This is the sector that's enabling school from home. Business continuity planning is going to continue to remain very dependent on ongoing cloud usage, security, and all kinds of other important features that technology is bringing. Yes, the sector is rich, but that's driven by, as you've talked about on your show, this incredible fiscal and monetary environments that we're living in today. So, yeah, there are names that I would own. I happen to really like Microsoft here and think it's a compelling buy. I also really like ServiceNow and think it's a very, very valuable, powerful, recurring SaaS asset in the IT operations space. Very good. Sarah Hendon, thank you so much. Uh, with Macari uh, Group here on TikTok. In the gentle politics of Massachusetts, that would be Joe Moakley and that would be Tip O'Neill of another time and place where it was about negotiation and compromise. The former Treasury Secretary joins us this morning. Jack, has the process changed? Is negotiation and compromise now the same on the Hill as when you worked for the Massachusetts contingent? Well, good to be with you, Tom and Francine. And um, look, the negotiation has always been hard, um, uh, but uh, the, the refusal to talk when there's a crisis coming is different. Um, you know, we spot from the beginning of this crisis a kind of reversion to the old bipartisan spirit that when there's a crisis, we come together. And in this round, it's been months, months that you know the House Democrats passed the bill and the Republicans wouldn't take it up, wouldn't talk. They waited until days before people were going to lose their unemployment checks, days before they were going to lose their protection against eviction in order to start a conversation. And now they're surprised they're running out of time. This is not something that you can easily do in a day or two. They should have been working on this for two months. But now is not the time to look back. It's the time to look forward. There was a little bit of encouraging news. The yesterday's meeting, the parties were coming together to talk about compromise. And compromise means addressing the problems, doing the things that are most important, and showing the country that government can work. At a time when you've got millions, millions of children living in households that can't pay the rent, and millions of children living in households that don't have enough food to put on the table, this is an emergency. We need to respond, and we need to respond now. It's already too late. It's going to take weeks for states to get the benefits back up and running once they've lapsed. Jack Lou, the heart of the matter here, and we saw it in the primaries last night, 
is a reassertion of the middle ground. Do you have an optimism that the, the nascent middle ground of the Democratic Party called on the edge of Scoop Jackson, the nascent middle ground of the Republican Party, which is pretty dim, do you have an optimism they could recover through this crisis to a better place in our polity? So I, 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 I think the, the results last night, and I have to apologize if my colleagues out, I've only seen a little bit of news, so I may not have all the latest facts, kind of give some competing pieces of, of, of results. I was pleased to see that a Republican primary in Missouri went towards a more moderate candidate, because frankly, the thing that has driven our politics to the place we're at is not equally on both sides. It's that the Republican Party has become an extreme party driven by its primary politics to take it to a place that makes it impossible to govern in an effective way working across party lines. Uh, I, I know that we've seen a number of Democratic districts shift, including you know, the district that, that you know, Mr. O'Neill uh, you know, represented in part uh, in the last cycle, to more assertive candidates uh, who are more from the left progressive end of the party. I think we'll see some movement in both directions. I hope the Democratic Party stays the party of the Big Ten, where moderates and progressives and uh, you know, both extremes keep focused on working together on things they can all agree on. I think that's possible. I think that the way Nancy Pelosi has managed to us has been masterful bringing this coalition together yeah. to function effectively. Uh, so it can happen, but it's not equal on both sides. But, uh, Mr. Liu, is the Democrat strategy on an unemployment benefits a smart tactic, or could it actually backfire politically? Well, look, I think the, the, the pressure tactic of being days and then hours away from expiration created um, this sense uh, that, that let's do something to just get it uh, through another week. When you look behind the curtain, it doesn't work that way. We have 53 state and territory unemployment programs. They run on computer systems that are probably older than you are, and they can't be reprogrammed uh, overnight. You turn them off, it takes a while to turn them back on. You can't say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You, know, you need to find people who can program in COBOL and BASIC to change the way they work. So the idea of a weak extension, once it's lapsed, I don't even think it works. Yeah. So it was it was a tactic on the other side. What the Democrats have been doing, and I think correctly, is saying that as a matter of macroeconomic policy, we cannot take away this support to families that spend the money because they need to spend the money without having a terrible economic impact, and in the household, creating complete you know crisis in terms of failure and yeah. inability to feed a family and pay rent. Where do these massive deficits, what are they going to do to the country's long-term finances? When should we start worrying about that? Look, frankly, I spend most of my career trying to live in that narrow middle ground as a progressive who believes government has a huge role to play and believing that we have to be able to, over time, pay our bills in order to sustain the economy and the effort of government. You know, in, in my view, a crisis like this is the moment when you need to dig deep into the reserves, because if you don't, and the economy slows down further or goes into a depression, it causes more damage, more loss of revenue than you're spending in terms of keeping things moving. 
leave aside the human hardship, just in terms of the economics. Now, it can't go on forever. At the end of the crisis, we're going to have a pile of bills to pay. And yes, it's going to take our debt to over 100% of GDP faster than it should have. That's not the end of the world if we get back on our economic feet and have then a balanced economic program and fiscal policy going forward. I, I was more troubled by the tax cut in 2017, which spent $2 trillion without any real purpose, in my view, and dug a hole that we didn't need to dig. This is what macroeconomic policy is for. This is what fiscal space is mm-hmm. for. I think we can afford it now. And frankly, I think we can afford to do what we need to do to get out of this. What we can't afford to do is to right. let a depression happen. Secretary Liu, I'm assuming that Tip O'Neill and Joe Moakley never worried about the zero bound. But here we are at the zero bound. The markets are speaking. Uh, Jack, I'd like you to speak to the Wall Street right now and to global markets who have priced bonds to perfection, as John Templeton put it years ago. What does it signal to you to see bonds priced to perfection? Look, I, I think that the expectations for growth and inflation remain very moderate. Um, to the extent that the large increases in uh, debt to support government fiscal policy are concerned, it's not showing up yet in bond prices. Um, you know, what I think we have to be attuned to is that things are fine until they're not. And, you know, my advice, which I offer to those who ask for it, is spend what you need to spend now, but be prepared to stop when the crisis is over. And just to be clear, the crisis won't end the minute there's a vaccine. There's likely to be a recession that goes beyond the health crisis because we're going to have a demand-induced you know, a, a business cycle to deal with. I mean, if people are not working and not spending normally, that's going to have an impact that goes beyond the day you get back to normal, which won't, as we know, be a day. So I think the bond markets are, are, are you know, looking at, at the current uh, state of affairs and, and making the judgments that we see. What I don't understand is the equity markets, you know, where, where uh, there's kind of a, because of being near the zero bound, there's a sense that values uh, can go up mm. forever. You know, I think uh, I, I think that if I was right. looking for a place to caution, that's where I would caution. Well, it's stockbroker Jack Lou helping us out today, equity strategist Jack <laughs> Lou. Jack, I, I want to talk about the voice of conservative concern over the burgeoning debt and deficit. You've been very clear there will be a price to pay. What is the political mechanism you see to pay down the debt? As Secretary Geithner said years ago, time will heal a lot of wounds. Is it just time marching on, or will there need to be an overt policy to pay down these trillions of dollars of debt? Well, Tom, let's just remember that while we're in this period of very low interest rates, there is the ability to support more debt than there would have been if we were in a period of 3 or 4% interest rate. So if we're able to pivot when the crisis is over, 
And if the the you know average maturities have 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 uh, been in, uh, managed to have a lot of the debt, you know, on a longer term, which I, they are being managed uh, to to have a lot of the debt on a longer term basis, we have some time to deal with the overhang issue. What has to happen, and this is true in any any uh, uh, fiscal scenario, is there has to be a moment when you say stop. And to me, that moment is when the economy is back on its feet, when unemployment is back headed towards a normal place, when the economy can function in a healthy way on its own. Now, it's hard. It's hard to change if you're used to spending three and five trillion dollars, you know, to deal with the things that people think need to be dealt with. It's hard to say now we have to start paying for what we're doing. Before you reduce the deficit, you have to not let it become a habit to do this two years from now, three years from now. But it's not for the next three to six months. It's longer than that, I believe. And on the longer term, how much of the damage to to the workforce and businesses do you think is actually forever? That that is, you know, permanent damage. Well, I think that there's different ways to look at the damage. On an individual basis, uh, you know, I worry about uh, people who are starting out, who are losing the beginning of their career. We know that that sets you back and that another generation, you know, gets there before you did. And, and sometimes you never catch up. And we have to make sure we don't let that happen. I worry about people who are advanced in, in their careers, who uh, who's work that they had before the crisis uh, may not come back and adjustment becomes more difficult. So there's going to be a lot of individual challenges uh, to deal with. If you look at the workplace, some of these changes that we're seeing will have a lingering impact. I, I don't know and no one knows whether remote work will become the norm. My own view right. is there's going to be a hybrid that's different. What does that mean in terms of real estate and office work? So there's going to be changes, but if we get to the yeah. point where the crisis is over, it will be managed through the normal healthy processes of the economy. Um, we can't manage it until we get the health crisis under control, and we're not near that in the United States. Jack Lou, you're a trooper to come to us in the blackout of the eastern seaboard off of this horrific tropical storm. Jack Lou making the effort to be with us today. We greatly appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.